chapter 1. Historically, I've been giving you historical addresses each year. Uh, this year, I parted ways with that. I turned that over to um, um, another speaker, and uh, that's already been done. So I have the privilege tonight of just preaching to you, just preaching the Word about what the gospel is from one of the great classic texts of the Bible, 1 Timothy 1. You know, Charles Spurgeon said, preachers should often preach from the great passages of Scripture. Well, that's what we're going to do tonight. Verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. So that's the big verse. But I'm going to argue tonight that verses 16 and 17 belong with it. How be it for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I'll stop there. So my message, the essence of the gospel. With God's help, I want to look with you at the gospel's content, and that will take probably half or more than half of our time. Second, the gospel's reliability. Third, the gospel's scope. Fourth, the gospel's pattern. And finally, the gospel's doxology. So content, reliability, scope, pattern, and doxology. Let's pray. Great God of heaven, we ask thy help now tonight as we seek to expound one of the biggest, most profound, sweetest texts in all the Bible. Make it precious to us and help us to end in doxology tonight to praise thee from whom all blessings flow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, perhaps there's nothing more elementary to a Christian believer than to question, what is the gospel? And yet there's a great deal of confusion about this question. And so what I'd like to do, first of all, is stress with you that the word gospel actually derives from the Greek word euangelion, from which we receive the English word evangel. So to speak about the gospel is to speak about evangelism, or gospeling, that is, communicating the gospel. Now, the angelion part, really you recognize the word angel in there, don't you? The root word, because an angel's primary function is to be a bearer of news, a messenger for God. Have you ever noticed how many times in the New Testament when some critical event takes place that's germane to the gospel, angels are present. Whether it's the birth or the resurrection or the ascension of Jesus, 
The event is often announced by a messenger of God, an angel. Now, the prefix, the EU, simply means good in Greek. So, good messenger or good message. That's what the gospel is. Any kind of good report or message. Now, originally, that had a whole diversity of meanings. One meaning, for example, was in the context of military engagements or political campaigns, when people would be waiting in ancient times with breathless anticipation for the outcome of an uncertain event upon which the future of an individual or a city or a nation might depend. For example, when people were out to war in a particular city or nation, it was common for people to climb up into lookout towers on, on the city's walls to scan the horizon for a messenger who might be coming from afar to bring a good report, a gospel of the battle. And if the man in the tower looked carefully at the runner, it was said he could tell, an experienced tower gazer could tell by the runner's gait whether it was good news or bad news. If the runner was kind of dragging his feet looking sad, the word would spread around from the tower that there must be bad news on the way. But if the runner was picking up his feet as he was running, he was coming with good speed and seemed to be running with liberty, the word would be passed through the city even before he arrived. Victory is in the air. Hence the expression that Paul picked up on, that the feet of the gospel runner was a beautiful sight. You remember how Paul twists that into gospel terms in Romans 10, 15 and says, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. See, Paul isn't referring here to, you know, literally our feet being beautiful. I mean, our feet are not the most beautiful part of our bodies by any means. What Paul's referring to is that when the gospel preacher comes to town, when the gospel preacher ascends the pulpit, he's got the best news ever. He's got the news of outstanding victory. He's got gospel. He's got the evangel. He's a messenger of God, and he comes with liberty and joy of good news for sinners. Now, in the New Testament times, you see, that concept of gospel, Jesus began to take and applied it to his kingdom, especially in his parables. He would say, the kingdom of heaven is like this or like that. You recall that. That was gospel. And that's the primary usage that Jesus used of the term. But as the New Testament went on, the New Testament epistles developed that gospel word a bit further Instead of speaking about the kingdom of Christ in general, they began to hone in just on Jesus himself. He is the gospel after all. He is the essence of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And so in, in apostolic preaching, the word gospel finally came to mean exactly what we mean today. By the time the canon was closed, gospel meant the good news of God's announcement about Jesus, who He was, what He did in the saving of sinners. 
And it's that, you see, that Paul so eloquently, so beautifully, so memorably says in this grand text in 1 Timothy 1, this is a faithful saying, worthy to be accepted of all, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is gospel. And what a beautiful development there's been, therefore, throughout the Scripture of this wonderful word, gospel. So today when we say gospel, we think of Paul's focus on Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the Logos, the eternal Word who has eternally dwelt with the Father, the eternal expression of His Father's thoughts, the revelation of His Father's heart coming to this earth as the God-man to save sinners. So the gospel is all about Jesus. It's ultimately not about our experience of Him, but about Him. It's not about utopias. It's not about anything we have to do. He did not come to prepare salvation for us. He did not come to induce us to save ourselves or to help us to save ourselves or to enable us to save ourselves. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. He did the whole work. The gospel is not about good advice. It's good news. The gospel is a proclamation. It proclaims a completed salvation for us. And so these are the most wonderful words that have ever been spoken. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. He came. He, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, came to this lowly earth, came to rebels, sinners like you and me, from the heights of glory, a Savior came to people who are just sinners. What good thing can come out of Nazareth, was the old saying. What good thing could ever come from our heart, from our lives? What good thing can ever come from you or me? Nothing. But Christ Jesus, this is the but God we heard about today. Christ Jesus came. This makes all the difference in the world. But the Son of God came from heaven, from the very one man had offended, from the very one that we sought to dethrone and destroy. He came to satisfy God's justice and save sinners at the same time. And so as we heard throughout this conference, the gospel has eternal origins. It flows out of the heart of a triune God from eternity. And that's why as soon as man had fallen in the Garden of Eden, God immediately came to His fallen creatures to reveal salvation rather than to pronounce damnation. That's why Genesis 3 is a It's a black, white, and red chapter all at once. It's a black chapter because of man's sin. It's a white chapter because of the promise of hope. And it's a red chapter because God shed the blood of animals to typify the gospel to come. The good news to Adam and Eve. God declares His unspeakable pleasure. I'm going to send a Messiah, the seed of the woman, to destroy the seed of the serpent and to bring in salvation. And then in the fullness of time, He comes. 2,000 years ago, He came into the world, Paul says. 
The world is the place where Christ Jesus and His salvation will be revealed. This sinful rebel world, that's what the word means here. It's not just talking about planet earth. It's saying Jesus came to this world, a world that lies in wickedness, a world that is at war with its maker, a world that is populated with people who declare every day to God, depart from us, we have no desire, no knowledge of thee and of thy ways. The natural world is but one great conspiracy against God's anointed. This world hates its maker. This world hates Jesus Christ. This world, if it could, would remove and destroy God. This hatred culminated in history in the very nailing of our precious Redeemer to the cross. This is you and me by nature. Cross crucifiers of the Lamb of God. The crucifixion of Christ is mankind's attempt at deicide, at ungodding God. Into that world, into that world that hates God and Christ, Christ Jesus came. Into that world that only deserves to be obliterated from the face of this earth, Christ Jesus came. This is the gospel. The amazing love of God. The love of God that's so great that John the apostle had to say in 1 John 3, 1, from what world does this love come that we who deserve to die should be counted the sons of God. This is incredible love. Love that flows from the very heart of God. It's a love that we cannot understand because there's no motivation of that love beyond love. Why did God love you? Because He loved you, dear believer. But why did He love you? Well, because He loved you. <laughs> there's nothing. It's a fountainhead. God is love, but love on the grounds of justice. So he had to send his son to come and suffer and die so he could be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Christ Jesus came into the world, Paul says. It's a miracle. But then the miracle is augmented to save sinners. That's your name. That's my name by nature. Sinner. That's just all. That's who we are. Sinner. The Greek word here used originally meant a runner who didn't reach the end of the race. A failure who didn't cross the finish line. That's what we are. We're failures. Rebel failures who commit sins of commission against the law of God every day and sins of omission every single second that we don't love God above all and don't love our neighbors ourselves and don't live for the glory of God. We're missing the purpose for why we're here. We're sinners every single second without Jesus. May I say it this way? And God showed this to me when I was 14 in a most powerful way. I could take you to Loy Norick's high school. I could take you to the sidewalk, the very square in the sidewalk where he showed me. I have never done one thing that has any good to it in my entire life because I've never loved him above all. And I've never loved my neighbors myself. Oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's all I am by nature. God came. Jesus came for these kinds of sinners. 
sinners that we say in the Reformed faith are totally depraved. It's what we are. And what does that word mean? You know, there's a lot of confusion about that. Sometimes people who aren't Calvinists butcher it, and they say, well, it means you're always as bad as you can possibly be. Well, that's certainly not true. We'd all be killing each other right now. Or we'd all be robbing a bank right now, doing something atrocious. So what does total depravity really mean? Let me give you five quick thoughts. Total depravity, first of all, is inseparable from sin. And sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in our action, our attitude, or our nature. Either by doing or being what we should not do, or be, which we call sins of commission, or by not doing or not being what we should do or be, which we call sins of omission. And so every life, yours and mine, has missed its target because we are always transgressing against God's prohibitions and not doing what He commands us to do. We have all come short of the glory of God. Number two, Scripture teaches us that total depravity, just like sin, is something that is primarily inward, an inwardness that stems back to our profound and tragic fall in Adam. So as we heard earlier in this conference, the guilt of Adam's sin is imputed to us, but also the pollution of Adam's sin is inherited by us through our parents. It's an internal thing, most of all. And that's why you never have to teach a child, your child, how to sin against any one of the Ten Commandments. You ever think about that? It all comes naturally. Because of that original sin which lies at the heart of our total depravity. Martin Luther put it so well. He said, original sin in me is like, is like my beard. I shave myself today. I look pretty good. I wake up in the morning and the hairs are out there again. You see, original sin just keeps coming out from inside. It spews out poison. It springs up in us as long as we live. Number three, total depravity doesn't mean we're always as bad as we could be, but what it does mean is that when God looks at every part of us, every part of us, He sees something terribly wrong with every part. Fallen man is not an animal. We've got souls. Fallen man is not a devil. We're not like the devil. There's no possibility of redemption. But fallen man, you and me by nature, there's something terribly wrong with us in every part of us. There's no part that God can ever look at us and say, I like that part. That part is good. But when God scrutinizes our affections or our conscience or everything that we do or think or say, He finds every part touched, polluted, damaged by sin, every part alienated from God. That's total depravity. Jonathan Edwards said, when I look into my heart and take a view of my wickedness, it looks like an abyss infinitely deeper than hell itself. What a tragedy we are by nature. What a tragedy sin is. What a tragedy depravity is. Then number four, depravity lords itself over our lives. By nature, Paul says, Romans 8 We are slaves of, Romans 6 rather, we are slaves of sin. 
slaves of sin, he says. We're sinaholics. A slave, as you know, is his master's property. A slave has no time of his own, no property of his own, no talents of his own, no wealth of his own, no single moment of which he can say, this is mine. His master has rights over everything. And you see, by nature, that's what happens. We're, we're in the enslavement of sin. My, my dear unsaved friend here tonight, I, I say it with love to you, you and I by nature are sinaholics. We're slaves this very moment, this very hour. We'll be slaves in our bed tonight if we're not born again. We're slaves even when we pray, and no matter what we do, until God opens our blind eyes and we flee to the good news, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are slaves of sin. We're in the grip of sin. Our silences belong to sin. Our omissions belong to sin. Our talents belong to sin. Our actions belong to sin. And that means, number five, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. You sow a seed of sin, you'll reap the harvest of judgment. You sow the wind of unbelief, you'll reap the whirlwind of destruction. Sin has a harvest. It is appointed unto all men once to die, and after that, the judgment. And that judgment is always imminent. The wages of sin is death, physical death, spiritual death, eternal death, hell, if we're not born again. And you see, we have a unilateral appointment with God, an appointment we cannot change the day of our physical death. And if we're not saved by that day, we will enter eternal death in hell. And the solemn, awesome reality that the book of Revelation calls the second death, the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Jesus Christ came to save sinners from their total depravity, from the lake of fire. See, the only way, the only way our sin can be dealt with, this is what Paul is saying, is by the agony and bloody sweat of Jesus Christ, taking our death into the grave, tasting death for us, entering the lake of fire for us in the essence of his soul, going into the bottomless pit for us as our substitute, crying out the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In our place, as our head, suffering the wrath of a sin-hating God against us. Jesus undertaking the holy revulsion of a sin-hating God on Calvary's cross. Hanging in the naked flame of God's holiness. Bearing my sin. Wounded from my transgressions. Every thorn in his crown, my sin. Every nail in his flesh, my sin. The sword that pierced him, my sin. Oh, what an agony sin is. But what agony Jesus endured to pay for it. Now you understand, I hope, the wonder, the mystery, the beauty, the glory the miraculousness, the awesomeness, the profundity of these words, Christ Jesus came to save sinners. You know, I've been to Israel three times. I always go to the place where he supposedly was crucified, place of a skull, Golgotha. It's always a little bit touristy, but it's pretty natural, but it's pretty clean. 
In those days, it wasn't clean. When Jesus died, there were skulls and bones and putrid flesh scattered about. Everything about Golgotha had an odious look. Every insult was heaped upon Jesus. The soldiers, the spectators, the priests, the elders, and their holy robes of office, all are focused on Him. Only one voice is raised on His behalf, a murderous, despicable thief soon to die. The pure-minded women seem to be silent or far away. The disciples who loved Him are coward and terrified. No one catches His eye and through a glance says, we understand, because no one understands. He's an alien from His Father's house. And his friends and brethren have forsaken his fellowship. He's forsaken of man, forsaken of God. He's hanging between heaven and earth and hell and rejected by all three. He's trotting the winepress alone. He's forsaken. The sun is dark. Even nature won't shine upon him. The face of the Father, he's always turned to in love and adoration, is not there now. There's no angel to strengthen him. You see, He's forlorn. He's paying the price of your sin. This is what God thinks of sin. This is what God thinks of your depravity. Sin is awesome. In the face of Sinai's thunder and lightning, but sin is most bitter in the face of the red glass of Christ's suffering. And so there He is on the cross taking your place, dear believer, the unclean place, separated from all that is good and lovely, abandoned to the most cruel hands of the most merciless men on the planet, men worse than the Taliban, men worse than ISIS. The very sun will not shine upon him. And even God, who has been there to support him and encourage him throughout his ministry, seems to have forsaken him. The unclean place, the passions of the mob, the sufferings of the soul, the distance of God. It's my sin. It's your sin. But through that, through that suffering, Jesus fulfilled what we heard from Dr. Solazar, his passive obedience, pain for our sin. Passio, passive comes from the Latin word passio, which means suffering. Through his suffering obedience, he paid for our sins until, until he could cry out, it is finished. And at the same time, for all 33 years of his life, he loved God above all, loved his neighbors himself in his active obedience to the law, moment by moment by moment without ever sinning once. And he didn't need to do either form of obedience because he was also God. He did it strictly for sinners to be their substitute. And both are needed, you see. If the wall behind me were pure black, because every sin we've ever committed was a black dot, and that entire wall would be filled with the darkness of our sin, and Jesus were to come through his passive obedience and wipe it all away and make it white, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? But it wouldn't get us into heaven. Only perfect obedience to the law gets us into heaven. So he had to do that too. This is what salvation is all about. This is what, this is what the gospel is all about. This is what John Calvin meant when he said, it's through the double obedience of Jesus that we are saved. The obedience of his suffering unto death and the obedience to the law unto life. To that double obedience when you as a poor, hell-worthy sinner 
by the grace of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of the Holy Spirit alone, are enabled to believe in the Son of God and in Him alone for salvation, God graciously, sovereignly, one-sidedly imputes that double obedience to you and imputes all your sins to Christ so that you are set free. So that just like David looked down on Mephibosheth and Mephibosheth expected to die, being of the bloodline of Saul, it was only expected he would die. But David said, no, I see Jonathan between me and you, Mephibosheth. And I promised Jonathan I would show mercy to him. You will be my son. You will eat at my table. Out of that covenant love that David had with Jonathan, he spared Mephibosheth. And so God the Father in the gospel looks down on you. You're of the bloodline of the first Adam. So am I. We deserve to die. We're sinners. We've deserved it 10,000 times. And God says, sinner, in Jesus Christ, my son, my greater Jonathan, I have mercy on you. You shall live. And he works in us an awareness of who we are and brings us to repentance and brings us to faith and sets us at his table. The Lord's table, yes, but the table of fellowship and communion with him all our lifetime to prepare us to be with him forever in glory. This is the gospel. Jesus Christ has done all that and comes to you as the very chief of sinners because that's what everyone becomes when the Holy Spirit works in them and says, I offer my salvation freely to you. So no matter what skeletons there are in your closet, no matter how much you trample on God's precepts, no matter how much you've despised His love, no matter how much you've spurned His offers of mercy, no matter how old you are and hardened in sin, Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Do you believe that? If you don't believe that, you're lost forever. Unless God intervenes. If you believe that and you fall upon that, you will be saved by the grace of God forever. Forever. That's the contents of the gospel. Now, God gives what He commands. He commands you to repent and believe, but He also gives those things to you. He also gives those things to you as sinners. He delights to. He's in the business of saving sinners. He's not reluctant to save sinners. He loves to save sinners. And as John Owen said, all three persons of the Trinity equally love to save sinners. The Son loves to die for sinners. That's amazing. The Father loves to give His Son to die for sinners, to save them. That's amazing. The Holy Spirit loves to work salvation in the hearts of sinners who deserve to perish. And like parents teaching their children a thousand times in a row the same thing, He has the patience to do it because He loves to save sinners. God is a God 
who's in the sinner-saving business. And that's what we need to understand. The gospel is good news because God delights to save sinners. Now, there's two errors here that are prevalent today. Most common is that the gospel is something very, very easy. Oh, are you a sinner? Oh, yes, I'm a sinner. Okay, well, just believe Jesus. Oh, I believe in Jesus. Oh, well, you don't feel it yet, but you're saved, and here's assurance of faith. You see the promise of God right here. It's what we call easy believism. You raise a hand, you sign a card, you come forward, but no change. You see, salvation is a miracle. Salvation means you're surrendering your entire will to God. You're coming under another lordship, under another master. You don't do that by nature all by yourself. Then there's the other extreme, extreme of hyper-Calvinism, that God very, 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 very seldom ever saves anyone. Hardly anyone is saved at all. Many are called and few are chosen. Well, hyper-Calvinists use that text, or should I say abuse it, so that the offer of the gospel of Jesus is restrained. As if God doesn't delight to save sinners. If God, as if God is hiding for sinners and they've got to come out and find Him. Hard believism is not the gospel either. The gospel is that God does all the work, and He delights to do all the work. It is a miracle, but He is a miracle-working God. That's who He is. And so that's the nature. That's the nature of the gospel. And that's what Paul goes on to say in my second thought. He says, this is a faithful saying. This is a faithful saying. Now, in Greek, this is also, these are also the first words of the text. Actually, the word faithful is the very first word of the text. And perhaps some of you know that it's not always the rule, but commonly in Greek, since word order doesn't matter as much as it does in English, it doesn't always go from, from noun to verb, etc., the most important words are often thrown to the front of the sentence. Faithful is this saying. You see, what Paul is saying is the gospel is always reliable. It is always true. It is always faithful. It's like a granite rock that stands at the beginning of this verse. Faithful is this saying. My dad used to always have a saying that was this. When he would start out this way, we knew he meant business. As surely as there's a sun in the sky, we knew he meant business. And we knew it was always true. We know we couldn't negotiate. Well, this is, you know, there's five of these statements in the Bible, in the New Testament. Faithful is this saying. It's like Paul is saying, as sure as there's a sun in the sky, this is impossible not to be true. This cannot ever fail. The gospel never fails. Now, that's amazing. And why does Paul put it this way? Well, because he wants to convict, well, two reasons. Number one, he wants to convict our unbelieving hearts. By nature, we tend to listen to Satan, hath God said. We say, yeah, well, God said, but my eyes say this when I see that. Or, or, or Satan says this, and which one's going to be true? But what Paul is saying is, God's 
saying is always true. God's gospel never fails. It's always true. And then secondly, Paul does this to relieve those who are groaning under sin. Those who, can't, who think that salvation can't possibly be for them. Maybe that's you tonight. You see, the gospel is so identified with God because the gospel is Jesus Christ that the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of the gospel are inseparable. In fact, they're synonyms. Puritans used to say the promises of God, the gospel itself, and Jesus, all three are synonyms. The gospel is Jesus. The promises is Jesus. They're all yea and amen in him. Everything in the gospel is as faithful as God himself is, and therefore God himself is the warranty, as the Merrill Divines used to put it, of the gospel. That's why your warrant as a sinner to come to Christ is as sure and solid as the character, as the nature, as the person of the triune God himself. Every sinner who hears the gospel has the right to come to God just as he is, to cast himself upon God and to trust in the trustworthy word and gospel of God. And the best proof we have of that trustworthiness is bleeding Emmanuel on the cross. Come, sinner. Come with me. Come with me to Calvary's cross. Do you not see the blood of Emmanuel from his head, his side, his back, his hands, his feet, and especially from his bleeding heart? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me so that he could offer you the gospel freely? Why? Why would you ever stay away? Why would you ever stay away? The gospel is reliable. But thirdly, Paul goes on then to talk about the gospel scope. The gospel scope. He says, the gospel is worthy to be accepted of all. Now, what does Paul mean by that? Well, it can mean two things. First of all, the gospel is worthy because of the broad scope it has. This is a gospel that ought to be universally accepted, says Paul. Because Christ Jesus came into the world for sinners, and everyone's a sinner. So let the full world of mankind, that's Paul's desire, accept it. It's not what will happen, but it's his desire. Timothy, he says, you've accepted it. I've accepted it. The Ephesian congregation, at least for the most part, no doubt, has accepted it. Oh, that all humanity would believe it. That's, what, that's his, his pastoral, evangelistic, gospelizing heart in this text. This is a saying, worthy to be accepted of all, he says. Well, secondly, not only is Paul talking about the broad scope, but he's talking personally to his reader. He's saying, this gospel is worthy to be accepted by you, by you individually, you and you and you. Now, it's too bad in some ways that we Reformed people have allowed Arminians to kind of hijack the word accept. Actually, acceptance of Christ is a biblical concept, but in a way of grace, 
not in a way of man's ability to exercise his own free will. You see, when the Holy Spirit applies Christ and His salvation to your heart, you accept Him, don't you? You accept His gospel terms. You accept that salvation is holy of grace. Thy people shall be made willing in the day of thy power. In fact, you wholly and fully accept. It's interesting, in Jonathan Edwards' sermons, uh, which I've studied at some length, when he evangelizes, that's his favorite word to use, accept Jesus, over and over and over again. But Edwards doesn't mean it in an Arminian sense. You see, if you understand the word accept properly, then you will use it properly. To accept something means to have it given to you first, doesn't it? If I accept a gift that someone gives me, it's been given to me. In the gospel, you see, God offers His Son and gives sinners faith to believe on Him so that we as sinners might accept the Father's unspeakable gift. In fact, He says, He that rejecteth me. Rejecting is the antonym of accepting. And receiveth not my words has one that judges him. If we are not saved, we will be judged according to this gospel, says Paul. Now, this acceptance, therefore, is not, again, just raising a hand, signing a card, some shallow, easy believism. This acceptance is that total surrender at the feet of the Savior, like, like Luther said, Being saved is going lost at the feet of Jesus and receiving His gospel truth from Calvary, from the Father's right hand, to be my life, to be my salvation, to be my all. Actually, if you read the Bible carefully, the Lord uses words even stronger than accept. He actually commands you to believe. He demands you to repent and believe. He says, kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. So it's a dreadful thing not to accept the gospel, not to surrender to God's Christ and His gospel. Peter Peter even trembled at the thought. He said, what shall be the end of those that obey not the gospel of God? 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8, he says that the same Christ who now stands before you in the garments of the gospel will come in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when we reject the gospel, our unbelief is a serious act of disobedience. In fact, it's our capital sin to our Creator and our God. The most dangerous thing we can do in life is not believe the gospel. Christ Jesus came for this purpose, to save sinners. Are you a sinner? Of course you're a sinner. Don't run from this offer. Don't run from this Savior. Don't, don't go on your own way. This gospel is everything you need, has everything you need. Jesus Christ is all in in all. Now, fourthly, the gospel's pattern. Notice that Paul goes on to say, I am the chief of sinners. 
Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. This is amazing. Paul doesn't say, of whom I was once the chief sinner in days past, and now I'm, I'm quite a converted man, thank you. I'm pretty holy now. I'm all set. No, no. He says, of whom I am chief. I am chief. I was sitting in a, in a session room, a consistory room, one of our churches years ago, and there was actually was a minister there. He was telling his conversion. I, it was very interesting, and he, he was a godly man. And uh, in the process of it, after he told about how he came to Christ and learned some things, he made the statement that, yeah, I was once such a Pharisee. And an old elder had the courage to say, once, Domini, once, you no longer, once, minister, you, you no longer are, you no longer have trouble with being a Pharisee? Oh, yeah, 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 I do a, you know, he, he backtracked quickly. But you see, what Paul is saying here is, I was the chief sinner, and I am the chief sinner now because I am a chief debtor to this glorious gospel grace, and I should be living all the time, 24-7, fully for the glory of God, and I still find so much evil in me. In fact, when I would do good, I, I find myself not doing when I would not do evil. I find myself doing all wretched man that I am. I'm still dependent every day on this gospel. This gospel isn't just something I got saved from once. I am still being saved every day by this gospel. This is the beauty of the gospel. It's got all the grace we need for the entire journey that lies before us. And then Paul says this, and by this gospel, which I was, was saved by, and now I continue to be saved by, God has set me out to be a pattern for those who are to come. Because I was a persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. I threw Christians into prison. I was a notable sinner. And if God can save me and He can keep on saving me, He can save anyone. He's a pattern of long-suffering. He's a pattern of patience in my life. And if I can be a pattern of patience and He saves me, He can save you no matter how much it takes, no matter how long it takes, no matter how patient he has to be, he will save you. He will work through you. Let me be a pattern of the gospel. Now, here's the point. Every believer will feel, because you know your own heart better than anyone else's, what a sinner you are. And maybe you feel more, I'm the greatest debtor that ever lived. You haven't gone out and murdered anybody. You haven't gone out and robbed a bank and those kinds of things. But you will feel, I'm the greatest sinner because I'm the greatest debtor. How could I still sin against a God who's been so good to me? Don't you feel that way? I, I do. God's been so incredibly good to me in my life. I can't believe I'm not far, 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 far more holy than I am. In fact, that's one reason why I wanted to write a book on holiness with Dr. Barrett, because I wanted to be more holy, not because I am holy. And you see, that's what Paul is getting at here. I really believe that. 
He's saying, I'm a pattern for everyone to come. There are no hopeless cases with God. God has this amazing patience, amazing patience. Trust Him. Come just as you are. Come with your Pharisee heart. Come like the publican. Come with all your sins. You're a mixture, you see. You're a mixture inside of you. And you're confused sometimes. But God is long-suffering. He'll deal with you. He'll lead you to Christ. He'll keep you by Christ. He'll keep you at the feet of Calvary. He'll keep you living out of the right hand of the Father. Look at Paul. Look what God has done for Paul. Why can't he do that for you? Did you go around and throw Christians into prison? Did you persecute Jesus Christ openly like Paul? Why can't God save you? You know, when Spurgeon preached on this text once, he said this. He said, you ask, why would he ever save me? I don't think he could ever save me. And I say to you, why couldn't he save you? If he can save Paul. Well, John Bunyan, when he read this text for the first time after he was saved, he said, Paul could say, I'm chief because, because he didn't know John Bunyan. I am the chief. You see, and that's the way a believer feels. And yet, you see, God, the whole point of this pattern business that Paul's talking about, is that God can save anyone. And so what Paul does is he sets himself up like, like a jeweler takes a diamond and he puts it against a black backdrop so, so that the beauty of the diamond shines. Paul says, I'm the black backdrop, but my God has shown in me and now I'm a light in the midst of this broken black background and dark broken clay pot, and through my clay pot, God shines with me through the gospel. That's what you want to be, a pattern of God's long-suffering. And you want to go to other people and say, if God can save me, brother, sister, he can save you, he can save anyone. You see, that's how people who are really saved feel. Finally, the gospel's doxology. The gospel's doxology. So Paul responds to all of this himself. It says, now, right now, unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I, I, I just love these words. This is doxological praise that comes from the experiential reality of tasting the gospel as sweeter than honey in a honeycomb. He says, I'll do this now. I will praise the Lord now. You don't say, but, 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 Paul, you're so busy. You've got so many churches to serve. Why didn't you save a little bit of that praise for heaven? No, no, says Paul. Now, now I'm going to break out in doxology. Grateful love, you see, is like fire in the bones. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, be glory forever. You see, Paul says, if I wouldn't end in doxology, the very stones would cry out. This praise would be burning up inside of me. It's got to come out. It's got to burst out. The gospel love I feel is overwhelming. Paul's feeling like Isaac Watts. We're the or Isaac Watts is feeling like Paul. We're the whole realm of nature mine, that we're our present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Christ Jesus came. And He's a King. He's a King eternal, immortal, invisible, the one only God. That's Him. And here's me, chief sinner, and he brings the two together.
The gulf is bridged by the gospel. And there's only one fitting response. Isn't that right? Doxology. Soli Deo Gloria. It's the only fitting response. The king, the king has pardoned rebels. And he will never lose his kingdom. It's an eternal kingdom. He will never abdicate. He will never cease to reign. He will never die. He's immortal. Praise be to the eternal king. He's invisible. And yet the Holy Spirit gives me eyes to see him and a heart to trust him by faith. He's the only God there is. All the gods of the nations, Paul is implying, are nothings. But our God is the King. He alone is worthy. And so the gospel produces doxology. And in doxology, we find happiness, blessedness in the deepest sense of the word. Because then we are worshiping God with all that is within us. And then we taste the beauty of the victory over sin in Jesus Christ. And we receive power to go on with our witness to others around us to declare to them what a glorious and beautiful Savior we have. As Thomas Goodwin said, a man who has assurance that this gospel is his gospel is ten times more active than a man is not. A man without praise is a miserable, grumbling, complaining man. So let me close with this. 35 years approximately Paul lived in sin. 20 years after that, he wrote the words of our text. Is there a middle-aged man perhaps sitting here tonight? Or a middle-aged woman who must say, I've had enough of sin. I've had enough of living without Christ. Is it not time that you ended your miserable existence and began to live? Is it not time that you would take seriously the callings of God in your life? Turn to the Lord and do not rest until you too can say, this is a faithful saying and worthy to be accepted by me that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I in chief. Remember that beautiful story that Rob McCurley told us this morning of that young man who didn't think he would be accepted by his parents again. And he came around the corner in the train, and there were white sheets or white dishcloths all over the lawn. That's you, my friend. You think God won't accept you? You'd be the first in the history of mankind who collapsed at his feet in repentance and surrendered to him whom he would kick away. He says, all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Not one little white cloth, but the trees, the roof, the whole property filled with white sheets gospel peace for the greatest of sinners. Give up your life. Surrender it to Jesus and say, if I perish, I perish. But I'll perish at his feet and you will never perish. But you'll find life. Now, now, unto the King, eternal, immortal, 
invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and forever and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Great God of heaven, what a gospel, what a Savior, even for the greatest of sinners. Oh, may we understand it. May we believe it. May we respond to it. May we accept it. May we surrender our entire lives for the first time or by renewal unto Thee and cry out solely, Deo Gloria, now unto the King eternal. Be all glory and praise forever and ever. Amen.